Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today I have a uh, fellow VC in the room. He is not just a VC though. He's got a very interesting background. He was in the military. He was in large corporates and we'll learn a little bit about it a little bit more in a second. His name is Chris Crisantos. Um, he is a great friend as well uh, and he's also very easily spotted in VC parties because he's got a haircut just like mine. Um, on that note, maybe we can kick off a little bit about your military background because I think it's fascinating what you were doing in the military. Uh, Chris, probably too humble to admit it, but he was uh, in the infantry and he managed 70 uh, soldiers in, in that role. And, and I think what's really interesting about the leadership position that he was in was that he was also managing peers. Uh, and so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that before we start exploring kind of the later career before you became a VC. Sure. Hi, everyone. Well, uh, let me be clear. I didn't go to the military out of choice. Uh, it's, a, it's a mandatory service uh, where I come from. I was born and raised in Cyprus. So you do a 20, it used to be a 26 month uh, military service. So um, it's actually a very, very interesting experience because you're 18 years old, straight out of high school. Uh, you're looking forward to partying or going away to study. And the first thing you end up doing is you get thrown into uh, the military for 26 months. And by choice, I, I ended up becoming a, a, an officer, a lieutenant, which meant I spent um, 14 of those months. I, I did training in a, a NATO academy, which was very interesting. Uh, and then I ended up on the borders uh, between um, the Greek part of Cyprus and the Turkish part of Cyprus, managing about 70 soldiers or so my age and having to command them to dig ditches, do shifts, um, uh, looking at tanks across the, um, the neutral zone. So it's a, it's a grown, growing up fast experience, which you don't get to experience at that kind of age, in a sense. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that we hear a lot are military analogies when it comes to teams and team building. And I know we're going to be jumping around a little bit about your experience over the course of working in a large company and then working in different venture funds. But maybe you can take this moment to explore a little bit about what you learned in that role about leadership and about managing a large team. Because 70 is not an atypical size for a startup that is fast growing. What are the elements that now in retrospect you look at and think this was done right or this was the right kind of management style that you learned in the military and what things could have been different and what things are just absolutely not applicable for a startup, but that are constantly being peddled to startups as, as leadership maxims. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I learned early on uh, was uh, motivation, finding what um, I, I, venture, if you think about it, and what we do within the startup world is all, all about people, finding what gets people going, what gets you excited about different people, working with different people, whether it's within the industry or startups. And to me, that was all about that. I mean, I saw a lot of different good and bad behaviors within the military. The, the permanent stuff that have been there forever were all about command and control and yelling at people and, and making us do certain things. For me, there was, it, I could have taken that path and yell at my peers, but that makes it very, very hard to actually get them to respect you and, and motivate them. So for me, it was about seeing what gets people, each one individually going and motivating them in the right way and allocating in them in the right role, which in startup world is very relevant about how you recruit people, how you position people within roles, how you compensate them, how you grow them in their roles and 
whether you can see those leadership features and managing 70 people is not manageable. So it's all about who are the leaders within those 70 to allocate them to lead mini teams, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting journey for me um, along that, which obviously helped me. And we'll talk a little bit about my startup world um, where I had to, I was CEO and I had to manage about 40, 50 people, which was an equal issue. But the first job that I got at Cisco, which we'll talk a little bit obviously about, the recruiter hired me because I was in the military and all the people in my team, uh, we were in an ops command center, control center, and you stressful situations, all the data centers going down when we used to have data centers before cloud. Uh, he had people from the military, from the Navy, from uh, Marines, just because we were raised under those pressure environments and working together as a team to get shit done. Mm. You said something really interesting, which was you picked the right people to then delegate to. So it was easier for you to manage a group of 70 people because 70 people was not manageable as an individual. What were the, the methods that you used to determine leadership within your staff to then promote them, if you will, uh, from within? Yeah, I mean, it's all about, I don't believe a lot in micromanaging. I believe a lot in um, allowing people to kind of sink or swim or step up and take um, ownership. So by observing and listening and understanding people, you can learn a lot. I, I learned along the way. So just letting them express what they care about, what things could be better. I, even now within Venture, um, I manage the associate pool within Notion and allowing them to speak out and tell as what we could be doing better and how we should be evolving things. You see certain leadership traits within people, whether they're the kind of person that just, just give me something and let me do it, or whether they're like, I want to change the world, I want to do things better. So those kind of traits and the willingness to step up and take ownership of something and move forward are, are positive things to notice. Mm. So when you left the military service, you, you went to college, um, what, what did you end up studying? Um, funny enough, uh, my dad's an accountant, my older brother's an accountant. I was meant to be an accountant. Um, and I rebelled, uh, and I said, why on earth would I do this? Uh, and I noticed computer science was a, a cool upcoming thing back in the nineties. And, uh, despite the fact that I never touched a computer in my life, I came from a poor family, relatively poor family, and we didn't have computers back then. Um, I decided to go study computer science and I landed in UC San Diego, which uh, had a good reputation of his computer science program, had a supercomputer center. And I walked into the labs the first day uh, and I was looking for the button to turn on the, the, the computer and figure out what this thing was, which was a very humbling and interesting mm. experience to yeah. study computer science without ever... <laughs> I would have loved to have read your essays. Oh my God. I want to do this, but I have no idea. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, to some extent, uh, it helped you uh, perhaps to get into Cisco, which I think was the first thing you did right after college. Yes. What, what, what role did you have within Cisco and, and, and what did you do? How long were you there for? Kind of what were the, the elements of that experience? Yeah, so um, something that triggers from, from my upbringing, I was born and raised again uh, after the the Turkish invasion in Cyprus with little money within our family to always have a salary, always have stability in your life. So my first 10 years of, of my working life after undergrad, I was at Cisco. Now, 
that is a long time, but at the same time, I lived in three continents, uh, worked in five roles, because uh, I, I get bored easily and I, I hate doing monkey work, which was my first job at Cisco. So I always treat jobs as, um, I'm not the kind of person that always sits and waits for the ideal job to come up and always look for the ideal salary and everything else. I treat opportunities as they come along and Cisco was not ideal for me at the time. I wanted to do computer graphics and work at Pixar mm. and I interviewed at Pixar and then the market crashed and Pixar froze its hiring. Mm. So I ended up at Cisco, which was not ideal. And I was working in the data center operations, looking at Star Trek command center screens for blips in what machine goes down and go and fix it and flip blades in the actual data centers which I hated. It was a basement. It was dark, 14-hour shifts, like ridiculous job. But I used that as an entry point. And within 12 to 14 months, I started asking, okay, what's next? How do I evolve? How do I navigate? I know technical stuff. How do I move to the business side? So I started looking for more product management, marketing, business development kind of roles within the organization. I was under a visa, so I couldn't necessarily change jobs that easily yeah, right after the downturn. I know the feeling. Right. <laughs> so I had to navigate within Cisco. And I, to be fair, at that time, Cisco was the best networking company in the world. And it was a great ride to be doing in Cisco um, at the time. So I moved from data center operations into the services division, which was the fastest growing as a business development manager. And um, soon enough, I got a board of California and... Uh, as a tech person, that's sacrilege, but I did. And I wanted to come back to Europe and see if I can contribute with Europe somehow and in, in, in making it a better place. So I applied to a bunch of MBA programs and uh, I couldn't afford a two-year MBA program. So I chose all the one-year MBA programs. Um, I got into Cambridge, Oxford and a bunch of others. And I chose Cambridge, um, again, not because I value MBAs, but it was a an interesting career change opportunity for me. It was a great year off in quotes because I partied a lot and I studied none at all. Um, but it gave me an opportunity to change countries, change jobs and everything else. Um, and then Cisco sponsored me, which was great. Uh, and I wanted to thank my boss for doing that. So I decided to go back to Cisco rather than get another job. I wasn't forced to. So I did that. Um, and I got extremely lucky uh, to land in uh, Cisco's uh, corporate development uh, role, not necessarily doing investments acquisitions initially, but doing even more interesting projects. Cisco's corporate development organization was a catch-all for any project that no one knew how to handle. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing black economic empowerment projects in South Africa, working with the Minister of Education in Lebanon after the war, to set up uh, networking academies for young kids. So it was eye-opening in, in so many ways. Uh, and slowly I started asking, uh, I want to do deals. I want to do deals. I want to do M&A. I want to do M&A. So my boss at the time um, kept telling me, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. And one day he called me at um, 2 a.m. and told me, get on the first flight to Washington, D.C. We're working on a deal. I need help. You know nothing about doing deals. Call all your colleagues. Get as many spreadsheets as you can. Get as many things as you can. Read them on the plane. Get ready when you land. Pack for two days. I'm like, okay. 
So I did. Uh, and those two days ended up being six weeks of negotiations on a particular deal. I had to call my flatmate to send me contact lenses and and kept on buying clothes. Uh, but it was a crash course into M&A in doing a, a big $300 million acquisition, which was great. And I never looked back. And, and then I spent about three and a half years within Cisco doing M&A um, software purely. I moved to India for the last year or so and focused on IoT investments and acquisitions before IoT was even a concept. Um, so it was a long 10-year tenure, but a, a brilliant uh, world exploration of different functions and different, um, different mm. cultures. Well, maybe this is a good point to talk a little bit about Corp, corp Dev and, and M&A in the context of startups. And your experience within Cisco probably gave you quite a good foundation to be able to counsel startups as to how to best manage that process. What would you say that the, the advice that you see uh, people perhaps give erroneously or what are the kind of things that people should be looking out for as they're approaching corporates for uh, M&A or how best handle that process? Right. I'm, I'm good and bad at that because obviously, as you said, I've seen both sides of the, of the, of the world. Uh, first of all, there's corp dev and there's corp dev. There's different corp dev divisions. There's corp dev that does it strategically, which if you don't have an alignment to the corporate strategy, um, they won't look at it. And there's corp dev that does it a lot more um, like an investment strategy like Intel Capital or Qualcomm until now a lot more um, as a returns, like a proper venture in a sense. So first of all, figure out what drives requirement within Corp Dev. Is it a strategic investment? Is it a, a financial investment? Second of all, identify who your sponsor is within that corporate. Mm-hmm. Is it a business unit because they have a gap or is it, oh, this place, this this market segment looks interesting and we'd like to learn. So we'll throw half a million or a million on it and just observe. And there's no actual opportunity to use that corporate's channels and and uh, and brand and everything else. So identify the, the actual corporate's requirements. Identify the actual sponsors' requirements. Um, uh, those are two dimensions. And then the third dimension is uh, timing. Typically, I, I suggest to startups to to bring in a, a strategic at a little bit later stage. Uh, to me, ideally, is Series B, perhaps. Obviously, there's times where you can let them in on a Series A, but just be careful, again, because the corporate, especially if it's a strategic investment, they care a lot about learning from you without necessarily adding much value. Not because they don't want to, but because things move much slower in corporate. Um, the sponsor that you had end up changing jobs, so you kind of lost your sponsor, so you're an orphan. So there's lots of reasons for you to have a negative experience when you're expecting to actually benefit from the channel on this. So bringing them in at a later stage where they get a massively minor part of your equity round, they don't get information rights, they don't get a board seat, they don't get all of these things that can be influential to you, is a good thing without them having much leverage. So you can still get advantage of the brand have access to the corporate without them having too much influence on you. Now, that's a generalization. Obviously, there's good good stories and there's bad stories across uh, both sides. So I don't want to sound too negative on corporate um, investments because we've done good ones, but I've seen a lot of them go south mm-hmm. as well. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll revisit some of this uh, in the context of acquihires and also in terms of when to start talking to, to companies uh, if you feel like it's time for you to exit. 
let's move on to what you did after those 10 years at Cisco. What, what was, you know, obviously you now have an MBA, you've done corp dev, you've worked your way from the Star Trek dashboard to, you know, basically being the guy who's making a lot of key deals. What, what came after? So through that journey uh, of corp dev, I ended up interacting with a lot of um, early, but also mid, mid-stage startups. And I always started questioning myself is, I'm still relatively young. I had a couple of options to go into venture at the time. I kept saying, look, if I don't jump into the operating side within the startup world now, the older I get, probably the harder it's going to be for me to to change my mindset and my ways and and adjust to it. So rather than uh, jumping into venture immediately, I, I thought I'd rather um, join a startup and see how that looks like and whether I can adjust to it and learn after 10 years in corporate land. At the same time, I wanted to make sure that I jump into a startup in a space that I'm super passionate about and not just jump into any startup. So the last year or 14 months of my life at Cisco, I kept talking to different startups and observing and learning because I kind of knew that I, I did the best job I could ever do within Cisco and there's no way for me to do anything better. So I, I knew I was going to leave and my boss knew I was going to leave anyway. So through that, I focused a lot on IoT, which was a space that was fascinating to me, obviously super early on as a process. And as part of that, um, I chose a company that I knew had a lot of operational challenges, but at the same time had a massive visionary, bigger than life CEO that was seeing how the world should be down the road. And I wanted to go on a journey with him um, and learn. I knew that it was a challenging business to, to do at the time. Cause again, remember this is 2010 where IOT was early on, um, not even existent in many ways. So I decided to quit Cisco, um, pack up my bags, move to Portugal where, uh, the engineering and product team was at this startup, which by the way, we were looking at through Cisco to invest in. So I knew a lot about the company, knew a lot about the team. I spent a lot of time with them. And um, I joined as the chief operating officer of the company. And um, through that, was an amazing experience. All of a sudden, I, I moved from a cushy life in corporate land to living in a house with five people, eating food out of tuna cans and, uh, and like living. We hadn't fundraised at the time. It was still early on. Um, so it was like massive wake-up call. And through that, obviously, I, I saw a lot of positives about me in terms of like my old military experience of managing people and seeing how to motivate people rather than to, to boss people around came around, which was great. But at the same time, I realized that I'm actually much better at doing multiple things and, and learning from multiple things and not focusing on one thing uh, within startup world. Uh, that, that was one. The second one was... Again, maybe given my upbringing in my early years, I was less comfortable with so much uncertainty in like salary and what things are going to look like down the road. I had money, by the way, but I chose to live like the rest of the team because it looked unfair to me to walk in and get my own flat and everyone else lived in a, in a house altogether. So it kind of made me think, am I ready to do this? Do I want to do this? I'm not an ideas guy. I'm an execution person primarily. 
um, I could be COO, I could see value in, in this, but do I want to do this or do so I want to go the, back to that? What was the first point of impact where, because I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about your military background. You obviously worked at Cisco for a while. What was the first point of impact where like the role of a COO in a startup really hit you? Um, the, the CEO, as I said, was was a big visionary. So he was traveling quite a lot, uh, doing speech sessions and things like that at different events. So uh, it was sort of a lot up to me to manage a lot of the different functions in the team, which as a CEO you end up doing anyway. So to me, it was all about how do you motivate a team that has is pre-product launch, no money fundraised. Everyone's going on a on the belief that we're gonna we're gonna get revenue at some point and we're gonna get money at some point. And seeing a lot of families that believed in in all of that, but at the same time seeing their personal side where they were struggling a lot and. You could see that them split that wanting to believe in this vision and do it, but they were suffering at home because they couldn't, they didn't have enough money to, for their kids and everything else. So to me, I was kind of, holy shit, how do I, how do I continue motivating them? And should I continue motivating them? Or should I just tell them, look, guys, maybe you're not at this, you're not ready. You should go get a, it's putting too much burden on you personally to actually, perform at work, which I did see. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was the most challenging part. And we ended up letting a lot of people go. And it was a voluntary kind of conversation where you could see through the conversation for them admitting that maybe I should go get yeah. a job. So, But to me, going from a team of X to a team of Y by downsizing as in the first few weeks was so heartbreaking. It was probably the toughest thing I ever had to do in in my work life to lay off pretty much uh, almost half the organization. And and it, it had to be done, like focus on one product, get the product out, help fundraise. Another company, Knock on Wood, is doing really, really well. And I'm glad I was part of that initial journey because I think if, if they didn't make those tough decisions initially to refocus, downsize, to re bring up the, the company up the right way, it could have fallen apart. Mm. When, um, when people are listening to this, they're probably going to be wondering a little bit about the role of a COO. Uh, when is it appropriate to bring a COO into an organization? Uh, when is it too early? Is it something that a CEO could potentially downgrade to yeah. if they are no longer the right kind of leadership for the organization? Or is it typically not that kind of person? Maybe you can give a little bit more clarity. There's a couple of companies that I know that currently in, in definitely in Seedcamp's portfolio that are considering hiring the external COO. And in some cases, that's kind of what happened to you. What kind of advice do you have for organizations thinking about that role? What is that role? When is the right time for it? Yeah, and I don't know if it's purely a matter of timing. It's also a matter of people. So what we've seen a lot is uh, what is the CEO? Is the CEO an evangelist, an outgoing salesperson that's going to be out talking about the company all the time, but doesn't have a, a DNA of, Looking, seeing things through on a day-to-day -day basis from an operational point of view, executing on roadmaps, hiring the right people within, uh, like from a financial point of view and everything else. So it's not just about timing because typically you can say, look, you don't really need a COO until you're at uh, more than X people, whether that X people is 25, 30 or whatever the number is. But to me, sometimes you, a COO might even be the third or fourth person within the organization if the CEO does not have that DNA. And we have examples in, um, I've seen examples where the CEO is that third or fourth person. And that's probably the, the best choice the company has ever done. 
But I've seen times where you bring that CEO, especially if that CEO comes from a, a different background and more old school kind of background where it puts too much structure and holds back creativity within the company sometimes. So is there a cookie cutter? No, I think it's a combination of who that person is, what are the, the limitations of the existing management team, whether it's just the CEO and the CTO, um, is it a matter of scale? Is it a matter of, and then the CEO can handle the scale and manage those people? Is it a manage of complementary skill sets? So you need to identify a lot of those things and make the call. It's not a, oh, I've reached X number, so I need to hire a COO kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that as a, as, mm -hmm. a, as a rule. What other kind of elements of the COO role do you think that startups should be considering? Maybe if it's not um, embodied in one person, um, how does the, the elements of a COO get distributed across the early team so that that maybe a leader arises from that group or right. that at least the sort of the org org management isn't sort of uh, left by the sidelines? Yeah. So, I mean, initially, if you have uh, one of the other things that I keep hearing a lot lately and we've we've seen a lot is talent. Like having a head of talent on board the team, not necessarily a recruiter, but more of a people manager and making sure that everything is taken care of and how people are, are treated and, and culture and, and all of that, which as a COO, you end up doing a lot uh, many times. So if you have a, a strong head of talent, if you have a, a strong um, engineering lead, not just like a visionary CTO, but a person that can build and manage the engineering team and a strong finance person within the organization, that can complement a lot of those things. But what you end up seeing a lot in early stage startups is you have a visionary crazy one CEO. You have a CTO that can translate a lot of that into what the technical architecture and the vision of potentially initially the product could be. And then you hire a bunch of developers. You might start hiring a VP marketing. You might start hiring a couple of early salespeople, whether it's inside sales or whatever. And you neglect bringing in those other functions like finance, HR, um, engineering, even sometimes that where that CEO typically holds the glue around making sure that contracts are done, financials are being tracked in the proper way, the teams are being allocated the right way. You're understanding culture, you're understanding office allocation, which a finance person can can do a lot of that. So. It depends. If you just have a CTO, CEO, maybe you need a CEO. But if you have a strong second layer, then you might not need one mm. so early. It's good to know. Well, if we move on to kind of how you eventually left the the, the company and moved on to your next role, how, how did that transition play out and, and what was the next thing you did? That was probably one of the most fascinating times in my life. So I left... Um, the startup and I didn't know it was the first time in my life where I had no idea what I was going to do because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm typically a little bit more organized and I ended up spending I specifically forced myself not to take the first job that came on and I spent about three four months where I spent a couple of months in Tel Aviv a couple of months in Berlin um, sorry a couple of weeks in Tel Aviv a couple of weeks in Berlin a couple of weeks in the valley a couple of weeks in New York and I was going around all these more mature or and or nascent ecosystems just to understand what was going on in each one of them understand what was working what was not working how each one behaved um what gaps there were because i was sort of looking 
is there a role for me to do, not necessarily in a startup, but is there a role for me to do within an ecosystem, whether it's for fundraising for startups, whether it's business development for startups, whatever it was, um, uh, like company builder, whatever it might have been to make Europeans ecosystem a lot more complete. And that's why I spent a lot of time in the Valley in Tel Aviv and, and New York, which are a little bit more mature as ecosystems. And through that journey, which was like a two, three month um, or even a little bit more journey, I got approached by a good friend of mine that was in Amazon Web Services in Asia um, who told me, look, you're flying around like a madman, meeting every startup across all these ecosystems, meeting a lot of the investors in these ecosystems. Um, this is the role that we're looking for in Amazon Web Services in Europe. Someone to, and we've been looking for a long time for someone that, that is able to connect with startups, connect with investors, understand the ecosystem, evangelize cloud computing and, and AWS in this ecosystem. Why don't you come join us? And my initial reaction was, hell no, I don't want to go back to corporate. Um, uh, I paid my dues in the corporate world. And I kept saying no because the job was in Luxembourg or because of this or because of that. And uh, this lasted for a couple of months uh, of flirting with AWS. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, look, my long-term career probably is going to be in a role that is, as I said, I left a startup because I didn't want to focus on one thing. I wanted a role that allows me to look at different things, interact with different people, different cultures, which is what excites me and gets me going as a, as a quote-unquote nomad. So a role like AWS's could help me do that, could continue to allow me to build a network across the world. And you did. You did a really good job of that because I remember... That's kind of in the context where we we met back yeah. in that in that role and and perhaps even earlier. But the what you did a very good job of, and I remember very well, kind of how you brought the brand yeah. to a lot of the community here in 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 Europe. But what I I never really had transparency into was how you um, how you evolved in the organization. How, yeah. How did you evolve within Amazon and kind of what the roles that you had within it during your time there? Yeah, my Amazon friends are probably going to hate me for saying all of this. But um, when I decided to actually take the plunge and take the role in corporate, I always put a two-year timeline on it. I didn't want to stay within corporate. But at the same time, AWS was a very small organization in Europe. There were like 15, 16 people when I started talking to them in Europe at the time. And for me, it looked and, and felt like a startup in many ways. So I treated this as I'm going to join them, spend a couple of years, learn about cloud computing from the best company in cloud computing in the world, help on this journey, but at the same time, selfishly build my own network, meet every cool startup in Europe, because that would allow me to do that as the best company in cloud and find a way into venture, which was my long-term goal. So joining under that premise that it's a temporary role, I'm not going to play internal politics to grow within the organization and manage my career within the organization. I focused every bit of my energy to the ecosystem. And that's why you saw me a lot. I did about 36 trips a year on average, the couple of years I was there. Because I didn't care about managing internally. I cared about making sure that everyone I interact with in the ecosystem gets the best out of both the startups and, and AWS, the best out of me. Mm. Um, so I focused a lot on that. At the same time, I was extremely lucky because Amazon's CTO is a European, uh, Werner, and Amazon's, he spends about a week a month in Europe. Mm -hmm. 
And I was his startup dude. So I spent about a week, a month or so on the road with him, which gave me a tremendous opportunity to learn about the broader Amazon as a parent and what they think about in terms of strategy, what they care about, which was invaluable to me. So, And, and, and can I attribute a lot of the startup program initiatives that Amazon has that um, they have been very generous with to, to you and some of the initiatives that you spearheaded? Yeah, in Europe. I would say uh, yes. Uh, I I led a lot of that effort, and there were we were a very very small team at the time when I joined. We were like six of us across the world, and we pretty much worked together in setting up a lot of those programs. Uh, it was an amazing journey. Trust me, it's 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 a great great company to be part of. Uh, just um, not not for the long run for me. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> and you know one of the things that we can probably explore is how Amazon thinks about um, working with startups from the point of view of not just the early stage components, but maybe maybe it's been a while since you were at Amazon, so maybe this is dated information, but how, how should a startup that relies on a company like Amazon or Google or Microsoft that has infrastructure, that has now new things like Alexa and new services, how should the company engage with, with that kind of company because a startup engage with that kind of company? Because a lot of it could potentially be putting a lot of strategic elements into that, but that company like Amazon is very welcoming as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, any tidbits there about uh, sort of how a startup should manage that relationship, evolve it, et cetera? Yeah, I think a startup should figure out what is strategic, what is core versus context for them. So if you figure out what it's sort of the, the saying that I hear a lot in uh, in cloud, which says we help you focus on your core competency, which is, if you care about your application and your customers, focus on that and leave everything to us, which is true. So if you care, figure out what is core to you and just don't compromise that aspect to it, uh, to them. To be fair to Amazon, and I'm sure Google is the same uh, from my interactions with them has been the same. They're not there to trip you. They're there to really enable you because for them, it's all about a scaling game and they're there to make you look better. They're there to help you grow because the more you grow, the more they grow, the more revenue they have. And that's why it's all about putting you out there, giving you as much opportunity as they can, because if you become a successful startup, they become a successful provider. So there's no trick behind the scenes. Mm. It's, it's all. A symbiotic relationship if you treat it right and know what's core versus context for you. Mm. So two years after that, you joined Excel. Yes. And Excel, you joined to sort of pursue a lifelong goal, which I think from our chats was to, to go into the investment scene. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your time in Excel and kind of some of the first uh, visibility that you had towards kind of being on the other side of the table, if you will. Joining Excel, again, it was a very long process for me to figure out when and how to go into venture. And obviously I joined venture at a little bit of a later age than, than a lot of people do. For me, it was a leap of faith to join venture overall and, and a leap of faith on me and on Excel side, to be fair to them as well, to allow me to join venture at that, that kind of level. Um, I, again, I come from a background of corporate and startup interactions and I was trying to figure out what excites me about all this world. Is it working with the startups? Is it doing the deal making? Is it um, just the traveling and meeting people? What is it? Am I right for venture, which I'm still on a journey of figuring out, obviously, because it's a long journey. But my experience from Excel was, which was 
great to, to live through was I figured out that I'm much, much better and much more comfortable working with earlier stage startups and working within a business to business kind of um, landscape rather than focusing on everything and anything, um, which Excel is a very general fund, uh, investing in every sector, in every stage. And I found myself in the Nordics looking at gaming companies or looking at consumer apps in Germany, which obviously it's great, but it's not what I'm excited about. And I, I kept feeling that I was looking more at later stage startups, um, which again, wasn't the thing that excited me looking more around numbers rather than the people side of the business. Well, it's ironic that you, you've had this pattern in your life, it seems, where you learn a lot of things from working in a large established organization that's been around for many years, and then yeah, you go exactly. to the upstart. So exactly. like the upstart in this case is Notion. And um, you know, I, I know those guys quite well, obviously, um, uh, Joss and, and crew. And you know, it's a great uh, fund. It's a great uh, experienced group of individuals that come from the, the, the space of software and from enterprise. But maybe you can help us understand kind of the focus of Notion for the founders that are looking to approach you. What are the elements that make it different? And also, what are the expectations they should have of, of you as an investor manager and, and partner and with the rest of the staff in terms of feedback from your experience? One of the things that was brilliant for me from Excel, I, as you said, I learned how a, a big long-term fund builds strategy and builds um, themes and focus and everything else. So it was, it was a brilliant experience to take over to, to Notion. And the Notion team obviously looked at that for, for that from me as well. Um, I've known the guys for a long time as well. And I looked at a couple of angel investments with them. And when they started fundraising for Fund3 and gave me the opportunity to join, it was a no-brainer for me. I mean, it's Notion, for, for those of you who don't know, was set up by four friends, um, ex-entrepreneurs who built and sold three startups over the course of 15 years together, uh, sold them for a billion dollars in exit value, um, all B2B. That not only allows them to, to have that success story, but it has allowed them to work together for now 20 plus years after the, the fund has been around for seven years now. And it's something that you, you notice as soon as you walk through the door. It's a group of four individuals that complement each other in, in a tremendous way, finish each other's sentences. Each one has his core competency. They don't act like they know everything individually. They have no chip on their shoulder, have had their success and are willing to share and and contribute in the ecosystem uh, with it and want to build a, a, a brand and want to build a legacy and want to do it the right way, uh, just like they've done with their startup. So Notion is a fund, but it's a startup at the same time. It's a company. Each one of us has a role within the firm. We're not individuals. We're a team. We, we all contribute with each other. And it's something that is rare to find. Like when we invest in a startup, obviously you get one person as a sponsor and as a board member, but at the same time you get the whole team and not just the partners. You get the whole bench of Notion, which is there to, to try and make you successful. So we're a B2B focused fund. Um, we're on fund three. We did a first close on fund three of 120 million last year, and we're uh, going to close, uh, do a second close this year. Um, uh, north of that, obviously. Uh, we ideally invest our sweet spot, I would say, is about around Series A, uh, about three or so million dollars on a $5 million ticket, um, company with about 80K MRR growing at a 
couple hundred uh, percent a year or so. Uh, but as ex-entrepreneurs and ex as ex-operators, we like to break rules. So we love a lot of early stuff. We do a lot of seed investments. Um, we did a, we let the Series C of go cartless and we invested in Workable at a Series B. So we like to break rules when they come along for the right entrepreneurs and the right idea. The only thing that's for sure is we're only B2B. <laughs> um, and uh, along the way, we just like any VC should, we evolve our strategy because the markets move and We've been doing a lot more creative deals lately. We've just announced 5AI, which is uh, an autonomous vehicle brain software that we've done. We've just invested in an agri-tech business, both of them under the, the IoT umbrella, in a sense, in a broader sense. Uh, we've invested in our first Seacamp company uh, in Aperio uh, in the legal sector. We like vertical. We like disruption of vertical markets. And we have a couple more that are closing soon that are uh, equally um, interesting sectors that we're, we'll announce shortly. So it's a great team uh, in, a, in a great space and a, and a niche value proposition that we've all come from that world. We can add a lot of operational value if the entrepreneur wants us to step in and help. Now that, that sounds like the, the kind of fund that, you know, definitely for founders looking to enter this space, one should approach how should they approach you what what is the what is the best way for a founder to approach you specifically chris yeah there is a cliche right of uh never reach out to me unless uh you know someone that can do a warm introduction unfortunately for me i'm the kind of person that uh responds to everything and anything uh and and typically real time uh, so however you approach me i'll I'll engage with you, whether it's through LinkedIn or whatever. Obviously, it is much better to come in through a warm introduction. I hate last minute. Um, I'm raising around. I'm closing next week. I, it, obviously, it happens, but it's it's a. I hate it. I, I want to build relationships. It's all about the people on both sides. So, the earlier you start building a relationship, and I, I follow your journey, and you follow my journey, and you you see what makes me tick and what makes you tick, the better. So. So if, if you get the timing right, is there a subsector of the sector that you guys focus on that, that is particularly interesting to you? Within Notion, um, I lead uh, a lot of the IoT activities, given uh, my background as well. Uh, I do a lot of the infrastructure, dev tools, uh, again, given my, my AWS background. And um, we all do, and uh, for the most part, 90 plus percent of our companies are data-driven companies. Uh, we've recently hired a, a person on the team that came from IBM Watson as well, which gives us a lot of insight into the, the machine learning, NLP, AI kind of broader world that everyone uh, uses as a buzzword nowadays. But uh, yeah, a lot of those sectors, um, I'm less fintech-y, I'm less, um, I would say, e-commerce enablement, ad tech and all of that stuff. I'm more about new disruption, mad ideas uh, out there. <laughs> now, if we go back to the days that you were in Amazon, uh, where you were supporting startups, you already had some exposure to being a CEO, being in a, in a company and, and understanding the difference between sort of very generic investor advice, very generic corporate advice to a startup and actually very ap applied. But now that you've been a VC, you know, two different funds, You've worked in a startup, you've worked in several corporates, and you've seen quite a bit of the whole aspect of the table from every single angle, but, but, you know, sideways, below. What is the key thing that you 
have fundamentally shifted in the way that you think an investor should relate to a startup? What is the, the advice that you give now as a function of all this experience? What are the points of view that you changed that you're like, wow, I can't believe how far off maybe other VCs are on this or how far I was in understanding the difference between um, one point of view and the other? Um, I see a lot of value in, in knowing what people have gone through and, and the industries, right? So I'm at Notion because, and my, I have 13 angel investments. All my angel investments bar one are B2B SaaS. So for me, the ability to sit down with an entrepreneur and be able to empathize and understand what they're going through and be able to help when they want me to, not just at the personal level, but at the, I know what you're going through that sales process, or I know what you're going through that whatever process um, is, is invaluable. I'm not saying that every investor should be an ex operator, not at all. I've seen very many successful ex investment bankers or consultants at it. But for me personally, Seeing this, I won't forget we were in a competitive bid with a, a deal recently where the entrepreneur had two other term sheets, at much better valuations than ours. And we went to, a, we took him out to a dinner and with, with one of the partners. And as the partner was going through the journey of growing Message Labs, which was a company that Notion had from 100 million to 150 million, scaling it in the US going through those motions, which is where the entrepreneur is about to go through some of those, you could see the entrepreneur's eyes wide open and, and be like, wow, this is who I want to be on this journey with me. Just because I know that when I, I hit those roadblocks, you'll, you'll get it. You'll be there. And we're not there to step in. We're there if you need us, if you need the help, we're there for you. Uh, and obviously a lot of what PCs do is is more psychiatrist, psychologist kind of work rather than actual work. But the network that you have within the space, the ability to open the right doors and help in recruiting and all those kinds of things is a lot more valuable as a, as a more focused fund. There's no way for me to know every industry and every sector and every person, however much I try, I'm going to die trying. So I'd rather focus on what I'm better at and continue building on that and being better for my entrepreneurs on that. Mm. But is there anything in addition to the, the way that you've approached both focus and the way that you've approached uh, being a friendly ear, is there anything else that you, you reckon that maybe uniquely qualifies um, somebody with your background to, to be able to give the right kind of um, support? I mean, is there some element of, of a company's uh, foundation um, that you're particularly yeah. uh, well-versed in and, and you can kind of spot the, those issues and, that, and founders perhaps that follow you um, would, would really benefit from knowing that that's something that they could approach you on? Yes and no. I'm, I, I like to call myself a generalist. Mm -hmm. I'm not a specialist. Uh, I'm not the best in cloud computing industry or I'm not the best in whatever. Uh, and I don't want to be because the world changes so fast, especially in venture, that you got to be able to be well-versed in many sectors. So I don't want to be in, in that bucket. What I think, what makes... what makes me tick and what I think I, I'm focusing a lot more on nowadays is a lot more on the people side of the business, understanding gaps within the management team, understanding what what's underneath the worries and the issues that the company is facing, because a lot of times comes from the people. If something is not functioning right, it's 
I mean, you can always fix sales processes. You can always fix whatever uh, issues, product issues. 99% of the issues that I've seen are people problems. So I put most of my effort and most of my um, focus, and I like to think I am I'm more of a people person rather than a, a technical person. Mm. No, that makes sense. And, and it's in line with what I've witnessed as well, definitely within the seed camp uh, portfolio. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. It's been great chatting with you. I definitely would reckon anyone who wants to get in touch with Chris, what are the best channels? Twitter? Uh, C-C-H-R-Y-S-A-N. Well, we'll link to that (laughs) on the metadata for this podcast. And until next time, guys. Bye.